Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. A national heat emergency declared so for the first time the ever in the United in Kingdom. The world temperatures are still hitting most of Europe. It means more wildfires across the continent. Firefighters Portugal, battling wildfires Spain, that have consumed Greece, tens Morocco. of thousands of hectares. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Bjarke Smith-Meyer, Politico's fintech correspondent based here in Brussels. And yes, we are going to get to the topic dear to my fintech heart later in the podcast today, cryptocurrencies and what the EU is doing to regulate them. We'll speak to Faryar Shizad, the chief policy officer of Coinbase, one of the biggest crypto marketplaces in the world. And we'll hear from European Parliament member Ernest Ortezan from Spain, who is active in Europe's efforts to regulate the industry. But first, it's hard to avoid the big sweltering topic this week, the heat. Unless you've been trapped under a rock or maybe an icebox for the past four days, you'll know that cities around Europe shattered previous records, causing disruptions to everything from travel to work and agriculture inflaming wildfires in France, Greece, Portugal and elsewhere, and leading to loss of life across the continent. In this episode, we're going to look beyond that fact. Yeah, it's, it's hot. But we're also going to dig into the response from European policymakers. Has Europe done enough to prepare for this type of weather? Are there some cities that get it right? And what could other cities do better? How does this impact the EU's policies on energy and climate? Let's get into all that debate with our podcast panel today. We have Carl Matheson, our senior climate correspondent, Aitor Hernandez-Morales, our reporter covering cities and urban affairs and generally keeping an eye on Southern Europe for us. And we have Zia Weiser, our reporter covering climate policy. So let's jump straight into this. Let's just ask the basic question. Carl, why is it so effing hot? <laughs> um, well, you know, we have heat waves in Europe. That's a kind of normal weather phenomenon. But this one's been supercharged by the greenhouse gases in our atmosphere and the changes that that's weaving through and, and, the, and the patterns, the weather patterns that it's creating and the extra heat that it's added. So this is what we're going to see more and more of in the future and it was kind of unthinkable even a few years ago that we'd see 40 degrees in the UK for example and now they've breezed past that 40.3 degrees on Tuesday and now I think we're really looking at a future where these events keep on recurring so you know we have to now talk about well, what's this dangerous new world and how do we live in it? So, I mean, one of the interesting arguments that comes up a lot of the time is that there are plenty of other places around the world where 40 degrees Celsius is pretty normal. Uh, so, I mean, are we just being snobby Europeans and complaining about it? 
No, we're being uh, Europeans that aren't used to the heat, I guess. Um, the UK just doesn't have the infrastructure to cope with that type of heat and same in Belgium where we just don't, we don't have air conditioning homes and things like that. So yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's actually some evidence too that human bodies that adapt to heat, you know, through their lives. So people are generally more affected even if they just like grow up in hot places. So there's lots and lots of reasons why this is a more dangerous event here than it is somewhere on the equator, for example. Mm. All right, let's let's turn to the question of adaptation. Uh, Aitor, I mean, as our cities expert, uh, I mean, you've been looking into what cities have kind of gotten this right and which ones haven't. You know, where is it best to be during a heat wave in Europe at the moment? Well, I just I want to uh, jump on the point that Carl was making before. And, and the thing we should emphasize here is that European cities just weren't built to deal with this heat. These are cities that were built for much milder temperatures. You'll have some variations on that in Southern Europe, of course, but overall, that is just not the case in the in the places that we're talking about, in the places that were affected this week. So in terms of the ones that are prepared, they're basically the ones who have been planning for this. So a really good example is Vienna. Uh, Vienna's had a climate strategy since 1999, and since 2018, they've had a specific strategy for combating urban heat. So uh, what you have there is a city that has prepared by setting up a, a sprinkler system that's activated whenever temperatures rise, and so so that mists people walking through the street. Then we're also talking about a city that's just very lucky because there are a lot of rich public investments that are uh, targeted towards quality of life, and that certainly helps in these situations. So there we can, uh, for example, really showcase the pools that were built in Vienna between the 1920s and 30s. Those are pools that now are very nearby basically any resident of the city, so they can go and seek refuge there when the temperatures are hot. Similarly, the other thing that is really great about Vienna is they've kept all the public drinking fountains that most European cities eliminated. So I was looking at the statistics today. Vienna still has over a thousand drinking fountains spread across the city. How many do you think there are in Brussels? I'm going to go zero. 90. Okay. So that already leaves you in a situation where a resident of Brussels struggling with a heat wave, if he wants to stay refreshed, he's going to have to pay for it out of his pocket. Whereas the normal Viennese citizen walking around can just stop and drink from their fountain. And there's also a lot of talk about green spaces, right? Like that makes a difference Absolutely. too? Absolutely. So there have been heavy investments in Vienna on green, in green spaces. We're already talking about a capital that was heavily forested, but they made the commitment to plant 4,500 trees every year. And generally what we're seeing is that a lot of cities are copying this trend now and investing heavily in green spaces. So Madrid, for example, is building uh, Europe's largest uh, metropolitan forest, which is a, a green belt around the city. That's going to be great for the people uh, living on the edges of the city. And these are areas that really weren't well-developed. Uh, a lot of them were uh, developed very quickly in the post-war period when we had a lot of immigration from rural regions. So we're not talking about sophisticated urban development. We're not talking about parks. We're not talking necessarily even about public infrastructures like libraries can, that can be used as climate shelters. Mm. Uh, I mean, you mentioned quality of life. Uh, Zia, let's, let's move over to you on this. I mean, we can invest in new buildings and we can make sure that everything's great, but not everyone's going to benefit from this in the same way, are they? Yeah, heat waves don't affect everyone equally, right? So if you're a well-off office worker uh, who's maybe um, commuting to work in a car with AC, arriving into an office that's also air-conditioned, uh, maybe you even have air conditioning at home, uh, you're not exposed to the heat that much. But um, especially people who work outdoors are really exposed to a lot more dangerous working conditions. So 
Think of people who work, for example, in public transport that's not air-conditioned in Brussels. I mean, I don't know if you were in a metro, uh, there was no aircon. So there's people who clean the streets or um, work outside, like on fields, for example. What about people who work in hot environments in general? Imagine if you're like uh, in a kitchen or in a bakery uh, when it's 40 degrees outside. Your risk for um, heat stress, uh, heat exhaustion and heat stroke, which can be um, potentially fatal. Um, yeah, some people died, no? Exactly, as was the case in Madrid, where a street cleaner died. I think it was in the afternoon, it had something more than 40 degrees. Um, and all those jobs are also often jobs where there's um, a level of precarity um, or informality. I think of construction workers that might not be protected well uh, in terms of labour law. And all of them also share often um, that they're low-income jobs. And we know there's been studies done um, that, for example, social housing tends to often be located in very hot areas of cities. So if you're leaving your very warm home in the morning, working out on a street when it's really hot, maybe getting on a really hot metro on the way back, like your body is exposed to heat all the time. So that's very, very different from, you know, working in an air conditioned office. What we are talking about when we're talking about the inequalities and the the event that's driving this, we call it a heat wave. But that's a difficult terminology, right? Because in Britain or in France and in Northern Europe, often we refer to a heat wave when it's like 28, 29 degrees for a few days. And I think that makes it difficult for the public to understand that the difference between some really nice warm weather at 28 and 29 and something that's high 30s even into the 40s the difference between that like hot weather and 40 degrees is weather and a natural disaster and wrapping our heads around that i think is really important because it's definitely playing out in a lot of media around Europe at the moment is this debate about whether or not we should be taking this seriously, whether or not this is like a kind of hyperventilation that's driven by a kind of climate anxiety. Like, take climate change out of it. This was a terrible event and we are going to see over the coming days and weeks the death toll come out and it will be probably very, very high and quite shocking to people. But we don't see the deaths either. It's not like a flood where people go missing and there's people searching for bodies. It's not the same. People die in their homes, usually alone. They die of complications with existing illnesses. So it's actually a bit harder to find the signal. But we really need to kind of change the way we think about extreme heat. I mean, it's it's interesting because um, it reminds me of the quote that uh, you guys uh, referred to from the United Nations boss, uh, Antonio Guterres. He says, we have a choice, collective action or collective suicide. Uh, I mean, I kind of feel like he's one of the few policymakers or, you know, leaders, decision makers out there who's actually currently speaking about climate change because everything now is all about energy and inflation and the Ukrainian war. It kind of just feels that We've forgotten about this crisis a little bit, especially when you consider the fact that, you know, you have U.S. President Biden in Saudi Arabia uh, fist bumping people that, you know, not too long ago we were labeling pariahs. Norway has been given the green light to go out and explore for new oil fields. Uh, And then you have uh, the president of the European Commission, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, who is then in Azerbaijan to look at new sources of energy. Uh, I mean, have we just forgotten about climate change policy? No, climate change policy is still being pursued actively in the EU, certainly. And 
Biden would be pursuing it if it wasn't for Joe Manchin. So he's got problems at home. The UK has aggressive targets. So, But what we do have, I think, is an issue of political attention. And so I think that we, it's, there's a danger in contrasting short-term scramble for gas supplies with climate change as if to say those two things are completely incompatible. There are some ways in which they come into conflict, especially if we make massive investments in gas infrastructure that locks in or contracts, long-term contracts that locks in gas for generations. But we're not at that point yet. But what we are doing is we're seeing climate change be sort of shifted to the side of the political conversation at a critical moment where we need to be accelerating it. And politicians, frankly, need to be leading on this and saying we need to be doubling down on our greenhouse gas cuts and our emissions cuts and our policies to do that in ways that are politically potentially uncomfortable. But then the other thing, as this week shows us, that politicians have to be doing and thinking about is how we actually respond to the the effects of climate change. Yeah. Zia, I mean, you, you chase these guys, these policymakers around all the time. I mean, have they just sort of stopped talking about it or is it still very much on their mind? Um, they haven't stopped talking about it. What we see a lot are sort of statements along the lines of like, uh, you know, we're still going to hit our climate targets, but we also need to ensure that the lights don't go out this winter, which is a reasonable concern, right? You don't want uh, Europeans sitting in the winter without any heating. But, and we're talking here about emissions reductions, right? Because like on adaptation, on preparing Europe for the effects of climate change, there's, and there has been very, very little conversation on the EU level on this. Right now, in terms of like preparedness, it's a patchwork across Europe. And sometimes for good reason. I mean, Spain has faces different challenges than, let's say, uh, Denmark, right? But there's not a lot of legislative action or like European Union level action on ensuring that Europe is prepared for heat, for floods. Could I just add one thing to what Zia was saying? Yeah, there is understandable frustration on the part of Southern Europeans because it seems like the conversation in Brussels is always focused on how are we going to keep warm this winter. Southern Europeans are dying now. Southern Europeans get to die year-round because it's very cold in winter and it's very hot in the summer. And they feel absolutely ignored by this. They feel ignored by the policies that are very much focused on energy reduction but don't take into account that a lot of these people will not make it through without air conditioning and they can't pay for it. So there is a serious north-south divide in this issue. But is that is that Brussels' job to deal with, or is that the job then of local politicians? I guess the question is... I where assume they're Europeans lie? too, so they, they should probably be taken care of as well. No, 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 as in, is it Brussels that should be leading that? Or is it, because I mean, there's constantly that divide as to whether it's Brussels' responsibility or it's the responsibility of the government sitting in capitals. These governments are part of the European Union. The European Union should be concerned when anyone is dying of weather within the continent. So they should be taking all possible steps to ensure that people have access to energy, can pay for that energy. And I think there should be a level of comprehension in the reality that the energy sources that we have access to right now are what they are. So it's kind of a catch-22. Certainly, fossil fuels are going to make the situation worse in the long run. But in the immediate, some people won't live to that point without using fossil fuels to keep cool now and to keep warm later. And just to say on Aitor's point, there is a huge inequality within the European Union 
there's also a massive inequality between the European Union and the rest of the world in terms of coping with the impacts of climate change. And it's it's kind of like if you can't do it in the richest continent in the world where, frankly, a lot of Europe is at, is less at risk, less vulnerable just because the impacts are less severe, if you can't do it here, if we can't prepare for climate change, if we can't keep citizens safe in Europe the rest of the world doesn't have a hope. So this it really has to happen right here. And with that, I thank all of you very much. Thanks, Bjorka. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. Next, we're going to dive into cryptocurrencies and the EU's battle over how to regulate this uncharted territory of New Age finance. That's coming up right after this short break. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. So, in my normal job, I cover financial technology, which, right now, is basically everything crypto. Cryptocurrencies are digital or virtual assets that you can buy and sell things, like Bitcoin, for example, or you can hold on to these things uh, as an investment. And they've been surging in popularity lately. That popularity peaked back in November when people around the world valued the crypto market at some $3 trillion. But since then, the market has crashed hardcore. It's shrunk by more than two-thirds to around $1 trillion, and that's a huge drop. And that's what people are now calling the crypto winter. It's left a lot of investors penniless and many crypto companies are firing staff and reconsidering their business plans as a result. Why is the industry suddenly struggling and where will it go from here are the questions that I've been looking at lately and that we'll also try and address today. Also, what are the lawmakers in Europe doing about this? Among all other things on their plate, do they even care about regulating these strange and sometimes confusing digital assets or currencies? In a few minutes, you'll hear from a lawmaker in the European Parliament who addresses these questions. But first, let me introduce to you a company called Coinbase, which is one of the biggest online marketplaces where you can buy and sell cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, for example. 
So Coinbase is the world's second or third largest crypto platform. That's the company's big policy boss. Yeah, I'm Faryar Shirzad. I'm the chief policy officer of Coinbase. And it's a platform on which uh, tens of millions of people all around the world can buy and sell crypto tokens. Uh, But we're also a company that invests heavily in the development of the crypto ecosystem. I caught up with Faryar in June during a lightning round of last-minute lobbying. Legislators in Brussels were preparing themselves for the final round of negotiations on the EU rulebook for trading cryptocurrencies across the bloc. This legislation is the Markets in Crypto Assets Regulation, but people call it Mika for short. So, naturally, Coinbase was interested in influencing the rules, especially as they're busy setting up shop on this side of the Atlantic. We have entities that are in Ireland and Germany and registrations in both those markets. They just got registered in Italy too. We have a very large business out of the in UK, so out of the broader European market. So Europe is a very important part of Coinbase right now, but it could be a much larger and much more important part for us and others innovators in the crypto space. Now, Mika won't be in force until late 2024, but more likely early 2025. But agreeing on a legal text is a big deal for crypto companies because they can then plan their business in Europe in a way that they know will be compliant. So once Mika is in force, companies and exchanges will be able to offer their services all across the EU once they get a license. So you'd understand why companies like Coinbase would be interested in this bill, which legislators agreed without too much trouble at the end of June, by the way. Faryar, however, had an interesting angle that he wanted to speak to legislators about during his visit in Brussels. Liability. And what I mean by that is the question of who ultimately is responsible if investors are misled or something bad about the cryptocurrencies that they buy on platforms like Coinbase. Should it be the exchange or should it be the ones that are actually issuing the cryptocurrency in the first place? And so like in traditional markets where it's the issuer that bears that responsibility, I think there's a similar dynamic that makes sense for cryptos, essentially a level playing field between traditional markets and crypto markets. And so there's a theme along those lines that it's critical not to put platforms, so crypto asset service providers such as ourselves, in a position where we bear liability for things that are outside of our control. See, now, that's interesting. Coinbase doesn't want to be responsible if investors buy cryptocurrencies on its exchange that later go bust. And in the US, investors have filed multiple lawsuits against Coinbase this year on claims that the exchange lured them into a false sense of security when buying certain so-called stablecoins. These are cryptocurrencies that are linked with a national currency like the US dollar and are supposedly more secure assets than other cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, for example, which isn't linked to anything. One of the most spectacular examples of a stablecoin going bust was in the case of one called TerraUSD. It boasted a value of $18 billion before breaking its peg with the US dollar and becoming worthless within days. With the collapse leaving many investors penniless, a group of plaintiffs accused Coinbase of falsely claiming that TerraUSD was backed by a reserve when in reality its value was dependent on fancy computer algorithms. Faryar couldn't comment on ongoing cases and insisted that Coinbase is careful to vet crypto assets listed on the exchange. I think our goal is to make sure that the liability rests on the right place. And so if you've got if there are rules that the Europeans want to pass with regard to the issuance of tokens, 
There's no issue with that, but the responsibility for that information should rest with the issuer. Okay. You don't think it's a little bit like, I don't know, if a company were to create plastic and said, it's on the consumer to recycle, we're not liable for this. I mean, is it not quite easy to push that responsibility onto anyone but you? <laughs> well, it's like, it's like if there was a issuer of a stock on a traditional exchange, on the New York Stock Exchange, for which there was some issue with regard to their disclosures. The question is, who would bear the liability, the New York Stock Exchange or the issuer? I think very few people would say that the New York Stock Exchange should bear responsibilities for what's in a disclosure that's filed by a particular company. I think it's, a, it's an obvious and logical point, and I think that's the point we're making with regard to crypto. And so, off Far Yar and his team went to meet with the high-ranking EU legislators in Brussels. One of the legislators working closely on this issue is this guy. Okay, I'm uh, Ernest Urtasun. I'm a member... This of is Ernest Urtasun. He's a Spanish member of the European Parliament for the Green Party. I worked on the MICA regulation and I was also the rapporteur for the transfer of funds regulation that was also uh, covering uh, crypto assets. Good stuff. So you know what you're talking about. So just in terms of the sort of liability issue that we've been looking at here, I mean, Coinbase were very much adamant that they shouldn't be held liable for any crypto assets that might suddenly plunge in value and the investors lose out on. I mean, does that argument have much merit with you? Well, I think that there should be a principle with any economic activity is that uh, somebody needs to be liable for a product that is being sold to any citizen in the EU. It would be really a first uh, for a commercial activity where something is sold to investors and nobody is liable for that product. I think this is something that is not simply not possible. Somebody needs to be liable. So uh, in the case of the crypto assets, uh, of course, it's true that uh, sometimes for some of those assets, there's no issuer, no clearly identified issuer. And then for the legislator, the only possibility then uh, for the liability was to make exchanges liable in case there is no issuer clearly identified. Uh, but at a certain moment, if you ask us legislators, we need to put the liability somewhere. Of course, the issuer should be our first target. But if that is not the case, then if an exchange is listing a product which has no uh, uh, issuer behind, then they should be liable. I think this is very clear. Otherwise, nobody's liable, and then we have a big hole for investment protection. Because I think Coinbase's argument was that, well, if we look at traditional finance, uh, then the exchanges, so like the New York Stock Exchange, for example, would never be held liable for any stocks that it might issue. Uh, I mean, they're talking about that there has to be a fair level playing field of sorts, but you don't necessarily feel that way? No, I don't feel that way because, well, if you take that example in the financial markets, there's always somebody clearly identified as the uh, ultimate responsible of, of a certain financial product. It doesn't exist that you have a financial product going around and nobody is liable. The financial regulation does not allow that. And then I think the level playing field uh, in terms of investor protection is to guarantee also in the crypto world, that somebody is liable in case something goes wrong. I mean, imagine you're a citizen, you invest your money, uh, and your information you have been given is false, is misleading, uh, and then everything goes wrong, you lose your money, you lose your money. There has to be somebody who is liable. So in case of a certain uh, crypto asset that has no issuer clearly identified, but still is listed by an exchange, then the exchange needs to be liable. And of course, for the exchanges, they have a very simple choice if they don't want to be liable for a certain product, they can simply not list it. 
it's as simple as that. Mm. And I guess the other sort of reigning argument in the way that Mika then settled was specifically in relation to the fact that any cryptos that don't have a transparency document called a white paper, it would be up to the exchange in order to write that white paper and therefore should be liable for what's in it. That's the general thinking, correct? That's the general thinking. Uh, but also, in order to help small exchanges, we also introduced a provision saying that if that white paper of a certain program has already been drafted by somebody else, you can present to your investor this white paper drafted by somebody else. So we don't ask all the exchanges to draft the white paper themselves when there is no issuer who has drafted the white paper, but you can also use the white paper uh, drafted by a bigger exchange, which has the means to do that. So ultimately, we've met Coinbase halfway in some ways. So if the crypto issuer has written a white paper, then they are liable for what is in that white paper. But if the crypto issuer has not done that and Coinbase would list that crypto anyway and write that white paper, then they would be liable. Exactly. Great. Is there anything you want to add? Well, I think that um, on the liability issue, I think there's a second component, uh, which is the component of the custodian activities. So, for instance, in case of losses due to hacks or operational failure, uh, the exchanges will be, and the, the market actor, which is responsible for the custody of that uh, wallet, will be uh, liable. This is a second part of the liability uh, debate and regulation, which is also, I think, important. And that's all the time we have on this summer edition of EU Confidential. Remember that we love to hear from our listeners. You can get in touch directly with feedback or ideas for guests or topics. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you are listening. So you can get every episode as soon as it's published on your podcast feed. I'm Bjarke Smith-Meyer. Thanks this week to our intern, Namratha Prasad, our editor, James Randerson, and our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.